Hello, this is Calvin Driscoll, and I want to welcome you to the Real Leaders Podcast. This podcast is specifically designed to equip you with godly leadership skills that can be applied to all areas of your life. Throughout this podcast, my dad, Pastor Mark Driscoll, will be sitting down with some world-renowned pastors and ministry leaders to learn what it really means to be a real leader. For more content like this, we encourage you to visit realfaith.com. Now, enjoy today's Real Leader Podcast. Well, howdy. My name is Pastor Mark Driscoll. Really honored and overjoyed to be with you today. And I just want to start by thanking Pastor Robert Morris, uh, one of my overseers at Trinity Church here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Thank our friends at the Gateway uh, Church and Gateway Network. They sent us out to plant and uh, we're almost five years old. It's going great and just super, super honored to be part of this uh, preaching event. And thank you, Pastor Marcus, for the honor I have of talking about one of my favorite things in the whole world, and that is preaching God's word uh, book by book and verse by verse, or what is called expository preaching and teaching. Uh, Let me just start by telling you a little bit about my story, because we all come into the pulpit with uh, some of God's work in our life, preparing us for the way that we preach and teach God's word. So I was born um, in 1970 in Grand Forks, North Dakota, Irish Catholic from County Cork, Southern Ireland is where our ancestors are from. So growing up in the Catholic church, I went to uh, Catholic school for a few years, was an altar boy, uh, assisted the priests with mass and the elements of communion and never really heard much Bible teaching. And I didn't know the Lord. My mom did. She was filled with the Spirit, loved the Lord, and was praying for her son to uh, get saved. And God eventually answered her prayer. So thank you, Mom. And uh, I thought I knew the Lord because I believed in God and I tried to be a good person, but I really didn't know Jesus and I wasn't filled with the Spirit. Fast forward to high school at a secular, uh, non-Christian public high school. I meet a really wonderful gal at the age of 17. Her name is Grace and her daddy's a pastor. He actually went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, was an evangelical Bible teaching pastor. And we started seeing one another, becoming friends and dating. And she bought me a really nice Bible, put my name on it. And uh, be honest with you, I didn't really read it, but I took it to college with me. I was the first man in my family to go to a a university, and it was my freshman year, and every class at the state university was trashing Christ and Christianity. And I thought, well, I should study for myself and see what the Bible says about these things. So I started reading the Bible, and I got to the book of Romans. As a Catholic lost freshman in my dorm, I get to Romans 1, and it says, and you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit flipped a switch in my soul, and I realized... I belong to Jesus, my life now belongs to Jesus. God saved me, kind of like Martin Luther as a lost Catholic boy uh, studying a book of the Bible. Well, then I gotta find a church and I don't know what to look for in a church. God was very gracious, got me into an awesome church with a wonderful Bible teaching pastor. I think a PhD in Hebrew and he taught me how to study the Bible and just was a really great Bible teacher. And he tended to preach mainly verse by verse, book by book through books of the Bible. So that's where I started as a brand new Christian in a great church family. And so then I had my Bible and uh, some of my friends were talking about something called theology and they were all debating. And I didn't know what theology was. So they told me I needed to go get a systematic theology so I could find these subjects and then I could debate with them as new Christians tend to do in college. So I went and got a big systematic theology. It might've been Millard Erickson's. And I had the Bible in one hand, the systematic theology in the other. And I went to my pastor and I said, "Uh, pastor, I wanna know, is this a good book for me to read? And he pointed to the Bible. He said, well, have you read that whole book? 
I said, no, I've not read the whole Bible. He said, well, then give me this other book. So literally my pastor breaks one of the 10 commandments and he steals from me my systematic theology. And I'm holding my Bible. He said, until you've read your whole Bible, you shouldn't read anything like that book. So I said, okay, I'll do what my pastor said. I went home, I don't know how long, maybe weeks, maybe months. I just read through the whole Bible. And then I came back to my pastor. I said, okay, I did what you said. I read the whole Bible. What now? Can I have my systematic theology book back? He said, no, I'm gonna give you an assignment. I said, okay, what's that? He said, I'm gonna assign you to pick a book of the Bible, ideally a short one, and to study it four months, underline the keywords he taught me how to study a book of the Bible, memorize the verses that stick out to you until you can explain it from your heart. You're not done studying it. Once you've concluded studying that short book of the Bible, uh, then come back to me. I said, okay, so I picked 1 John and I studied it diligently and I dug into it as he taught me. And then I came back to him. I said, okay, I, I did the two assignments. I read the whole Bible and I studied a short book of the Bible. Can I have my systematic theology book back? And he said, no, not yet. I said, well, what else do you want me to do? He said, pick another short book of the Bible and do it again. And I said, well, how long am I supposed to do this for? He said, quote, for the rest of your life. That was my life assignment from my first pastor. He said, uh, there's 66 books in the Bible. Let's say you take roughly six months per book in 33 years, which seemed like a long time when I'm 19 in college. But now that I'm 50, it's not that long. He said, uh, you'll know the whole Bible to some degree in your heart. He said, there's nothing wrong with systematic theology, but start with the Bible, studying it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That has been what I've been doing ever since. And, uh, and that's how I come to expository preaching and teaching. A little while later, I went to the first men's retreat that I'd ever been on with our church, and we were told to spend some time with God. So I went for a walk in the woods, somewhere between the Washington and Idaho border. And I didn't even know God did this, but he spoke audibly to me and he said, Mary Grace, which I was excited about as a 19-year-old college freshman, uh, preached the Bible, trained men, and plant churches. So I went to my pastor. I said, well, these are the four things God said. He said, that's what your life calling is. So I got my life calling from the Lord. I got my life assignment from my pastor. And when God told me to preach, I assumed it was to preach according to the assignment given me from my first pastor. Well, I graduated uh, having married Grace between our junior and senior year in college. I got a bachelor's degree in speech from the Edward R. Murrow School of Communication. It was at the time one of the top five programs in America. Uh, it took me a long time, but I eventually got a master's degree in exegetical theology, which is basically Bible, how to preach through books of the Bible. Fast forward, I'm 50 years of age. Grace and I have been happily, faithfully married for 29 years. We've got five kids who all love and serve Jesus, and they're all godly kids. Praise God for them. Most of them are Bible teachers too. And uh, I have now been a senior pastor for half my life, 25 years, and I have preached or taught through the majority of the books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, including very long ones like Genesis and Exodus. I think it took two years in the book of Luke. I preached the whole book of John. I just recently finished the entire book of Romans. And I think this is the first time I've ever taught on how to teach through a book of the Bible. You could find all my Bible teaching at realfaith.com or download the free Real Faith app. Um, but I've never taught on how to teach through a book of the Bible. So I don't know if this is going to be good or bad. Pastor Robert, thank you for the grace of being able to teach. What I can tell you is, however this plays out, this will be the best session I've ever given in my entire life on how to preach through books of the Bible. So in session one, I really want to focus on preaching in general 
And then in session two, I really want to focus on expository preaching in particular. And the thing I want to start with is that preaching is echoing. That as preachers, we are not just to speak, but we are to repeat what the Lord has said. That ultimately, preaching is echoing. And the first thing that we see regarding preaching is that in the Bible, God is the first preacher. So for you and I who are giving the honor of preaching and teaching, we're giving a really sacred honor to do what God does. So in Genesis 1, we read 10 times God said, and then seven times God saw. It's a fulfillment of the scripture that says when God's word goes out, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes what God has appointed for it to do. God's word has its own innate power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens when God's word goes forth, it brings the life of God. And so God brings the world into existence surely by speaking it. Theologians will call this ex nihilo. It means from nothing. And it references this in Hebrews 11, that God spoke everything into being from nothing, but he did so by the power of his word. The way that you and I bring things into being, lives, families, churches, ministries, and destinies, is we release and unleash the powerful force of God's word. I was talking to a church planner that I'm coaching recently, and he had no people or money or you know, beginning of his church was literally just him and his wife and his kids. He's like, well, how do you get a church? You get a church the same way you get a world. You speak it into existence. God spoke the world into existence. You preach and God brings the church into existence. What we then see, not only is God the first preacher, the second preacher in history is Satan himself. He shows up in Genesis 3 and he's, pre he's a preacher as well. So God says something and Satan says something else. And this is crucial, that Adam and Eve are supposed to echo God and instead they choose to echo Satan. Every time you and I get up to preach and teach, we are in that same spiritual warfare place of Genesis 3. Will I say what the Lord has said and echo him? Or will I say what Satan has said and echo him? It's like we've got two ears and God is speaking into one and Satan is speaking into the other. And then we've got to decide the words that come out of our mouth, will they echo our Lord or will they echo our enemy and the enemy of our Lord? And so ultimately, the spiritual warfare is absolutely around ministry and preaching. And spiritual warfare includes you and your spouse. Satan didn't even show up until Adam and Eve were married with a ministry call in their life and a designation to go forth and to speak on behalf of God. Spiritual warfare is particularly uh, painful and pernicious for a married couple that has a calling on their life to put God's word out into the world to unleash God's power to bring forth life. And so what I'm saying is you as a preacher and I as a preacher and our spouses were under incredible pressure and constant demonic opposition and attack. God wants us to echo him. Satan wants us to echo him. And so ultimately, when all is said and done, there will only be two cultures in the world, the culture of God's kingdom in heaven and hell, where Satan will be tormented uh, as Jesus Christ rules over all. And what happens is that every day the decisions we make um, the words we speak, they either invite heaven down or they pull hell up. What happened in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had an opportunity to speak what God had said and to invite heaven down. Instead, they said and echoed what Satan said, and they literally pulled the culture of hell up. The result has been throughout human history, it's kind of hell on earth. And we need Jesus to come down and to bring the kingdom in his culture. The point is this, 
uh, that every time you and I preach, we're either inviting the kingdom or we're pulling up the culture of hell. This is why preaching is warfare. This is why it's a war to get into the pulpit. This is why it's a war to keep your thoughts clear in the pulpit. This is why it is a war not to leak or vent, to do your homework and to teach the word of God faithfully and consistently. And it's also why when you and I are preaching, it's so much of a battle in our soul and in our mind and also why it is so exhausting because we're not just preaching to people, but we're preaching against powers, principalities, and spirits, the demonic unseen realm in the room that is seeking to distract the people and also distract the preacher so that the word of God is not unleashed and released with the fullness of power in the spirit. That being said, I wanna thank you. I wanna honor you and honor your family for preaching and teaching God's word. And I want to say then that in addition to preparing the message, because it is in the context of this global uh, cosmic battle between good and evil, God and Satan, heaven and hell, that ultimately it's not just enough to prepare our messages, but we must prepare our messengers. And um, you can get a lot of classes on how to prepare a message. And that's really important. But I want to start by saying, I think perhaps the most important thing is to prepare the messenger to prepare the messenger. And so what I wanna say is that first and foremost, your public ministry should overflow out of your private ministry. Uh, that uh, when the Bible says to love our neighbor, Martin Luther says that our nearest neighbor is our spouse and kids. And it's not just about preaching a good sermon, but it's about living a life that is your greatest sermon. If you're gonna live as a living epistle, that means it's not just the words that you speak, but it's the relationships that you have, starting with the Lord, your spouse, and your kids, that then be the overflow for your public ministry. So public ministry is just an overflow of private ministry. How's your time in the spirit? How's your time in the scriptures? How is your time with the Lord? How is your relationship with your spouse? How is your investment of your children? What you don't wanna do is ignore your relationship with your spouse and your kids, preach over them to have great messages. You wanna do spirit-filled life with the presence of God surrounding and indwelling your family so that ministry publicly is an overflow of the life in the spirit in your family privately. In addition, more important than your ability, your intellect, your education, and your homework, all of those are very important. But what's most important to preaching is God's anointing. And God's anointing is something that the Holy Spirit wants to flow uh, in and through you to minister to others. And the way that you and I can minister in the Spirit and preach and teach and flow in the Spirit is by assuming first and foremost that the Holy Spirit wants to work for us, in us, and through us, and he wants to do good ministry to others. And we are not needing to make the Holy Spirit want to get his word out to the world. The Holy Spirit has inspired the writing of scripture. He has saved, gifted, anointed, and appointed us as heralds and proclaimers of his word. That means that he wants his word to go out through us more than anyone but then as leaders, it's asking, are there ways that I am grieving, quenching, or resisting the spirit to use those three categories of the New Testament? And I know this is off of my notes and a verbal process a lot, um, but I feel inclined in the spirit and burdened to share this with you. The number one thing that will inhibit or prohibit the fullness of the flow of the anointing in your preaching and teaching is bitterness in you, your spouse, or your children. 
Heaven is a culture of forgiveness. It's where all the forgiven people go. Hell is a culture of unforgiveness. It's where all the unforgiven and unforgiving people go. God forgives, Satan does not. Satan forgives no one and nothing. And as a result, hell is the culture of unforgiveness and bitterness. Here's what I know, as a leader, you endure a lot. Your spouse endures a tremendous amount. They see the worst in people, works of the flesh and works of the demonic, in addition to the best in people, works of the spirit. Your children are on the front line of ministry. Ministry leaders, I like to say that we're the only soldiers that bring our spouses and children to the front lines of battle. Uh, my wife is a pastor's kid. She grew up at war. Our five children are pastor's kids. They grew up on the front lines of war. And I'm sorry for what you've been through. I'm sorry for the way you've been used and abused. I'm sorry for the way that people have attacked you or harmed you, lied about you, stolen from you, maligned you, um, sought to do evil against you, uh, manipulated or taken advantage of your wife or children or put incredible pressure that has uh, done harm or even damage to your marriage and family. I'm sorry for all of that. And I know it's hard because you can't talk about it, neither can your spouse or kids, because then you're leaking, you're venting, you're being bitter and you're being divisive. And so many times we just hold it. But here's what I'm saying is, the key to anointing is forgiving. And we can't just preach that God forgives us, we need to forgive them. That's where Jesus says that we need to forgive from the heart. That's where Paul says we need to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Here's what I'm telling you, it's, it's oftentimes unhealed hurts, it's brokenness, it's woundedness, it's frustration, it's annoyance, it's exhaustion, it's bitterness and or injustice in you, in your spouse or in your kids that will hinder the fullness of the flow of the spirit of God through your preaching and teaching. Because the spirit of God works through forgiveness and unholy spirits work through bitterness. Is there anything you need to forgive? Is there anyone you need to forgive? Um, how about your spouse? Is there anyone or anything they need to forgive? How about your kids? Are there burdens that they are carrying because there are hardships that they are still enduring, that they need to unburden of and give to the Lord in forgiveness. That ultimately, I, I believe that, that sometimes ministry is hindered, not be, because the Lord is unwilling to pour out his anointing, but because we thwart it through our unforgiveness and bitterness and unhealed hurts. If we learn anything from the story of Joseph, it is that um, the deeper the forgiveness, the greater is the anointing that Joseph had to spend a lot of time forgiving his family so that then God could rise him up to literally sit at the right hand of what was the counterfeit God of Egypt in the Jesus seat, ruling and reigning. The reason that he was able to be used so mightily is because he forgave so deeply. And I just wanna say that I've dealt with pastors and ministry leaders and I love pastors and their families so dearly. What you've been through, it's war. Some of it's flesh, some of it's demonic, much of it is painful. The toll it's taken on your marriage or your own well-being or your children is very real. But if you will forgive them and let God deal with them, if you will give that to the Lord so he could give the spirit to you, that could unlock a fresh anointing on your preaching so that the spirit of God could work through you and your family in the fullness of joy to fully unleash and release the power of God's word in a fresh way. 
Well, that being said, I believe it is important to know that preaching happens in the context of spiritual warfare and two kingdoms in conflict, that before we prepare the message, we got to prepare the messenger. So for me, every week, it's confessing my sin, praying in the spirit, spending time with my wife, Grace, verbal processing the sermon, checking in with my kids, getting the messenger right, and then working on the message. And this brings us to the theme of our time together. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.2, you're all familiar with it, preach the word. And so what we're talking about is preaching the word. And the principle is preach the word. The methods are what I'm going to call expositional, expositional topical, and topical preaching. The principles in the Bible are unchanging. The methods are changing. The principle is singular. The methods are plural. This is what God commands us to do. And then the Holy Spirit helps us figure out how we can best do that. And so there is a difference between principles and methods. So what I'm going to deal with is what I would call expository preaching, which is going through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. What I'm going to call expository topical, meaning expository, you're going through a section, but you're not going through the whole book. You're just looking at a topical section or a subsection within a book. And then what is known as topical preaching, which is the most probably common and popular in our day. Let me start with expository preaching, which is probably the least popular, least frequent in our day, but it is my favorite. And it is the protein in the diet in my 25 years in the pulpit. Expository preaching is picking a book of the Bible and going through it verse by verse. There are four benefits I'm going to give to each of these versions and forms or methods of preaching. Number one, uh, it helps people learn biblical theology. When you go through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, people are learning biblical theology. When you do a topical sermon series and you're pulling themes and threads out of the Bible into a topical categorization, they're learning systematic theology. Biblical theology and systematic theology are both incredibly important and no student of the scriptures should study one without the other, like a left hand and a right hand. We, we need both and you better be good at your biblical theology and your systematic theology. So it's not one or the other, it's both and together. But what happens when you teach people verse by verse, chapter by chapter, biblical theology, they learn to read the Bible diachronically, meaning along the storyline of the Bible. When you go through topics and teach in a systematic way, what happens then is you're teaching people to study the Bible synchronically, pulling out the themes and threads from along the storyline. Uh, in addition, and so what expository preaching will help, it'll help them learn the storyline or the, uh, the, the train of thought, the reasoned argument, the divine design, if you will, of that book of the Bible and how it fits within the storyline and narrative of scripture. In addition, uh, if you're going you know, through a book of the Bible, it really helps people to read just that book of the Bible. So maybe while we're in this series every day, just be reading a section of that book. And it helps them to read ahead. Okay, I know where the pastor is going this weekend, so now I can read and study and pray. And maybe we can have a little discussion as a family around the dinner table so that when we show up to church, we all are ready and have already been prepared for where we're going to be studying together. Uh, it also forces people to deal with the text. It's like, well, that's what it says. You know, and we looked at it in context, and so it's not a proof text. It, it's in fact exactly what God has said. Great Bible teachers like uh, Justin Martyr in church history have used this method. 
And for some people, they would say it comes with a higher degree of authority. If you're pulling topics or themes or verses, you're like, I think I got it right. But for some people, I'm judging no one. I'm speaking ill of no one. Uh, just, just some observations. Some people would say that they feel a higher sense and degree of innate authority because it's like, well, that's exactly what it said. I didn't make it up. We're just going through it as God presented it. Now, what I would say is this. I come from an expository preaching world. Uh, this has been 25 years of my adult life as a senior pastor. But the Bible does not command us to preach the word uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Okay, And so what can happen is sometimes what people will do, they'll want to not only take God's principle, but then they'll only want to have their method be the only application of God's principle. This is how we get legalism. When a methodology becomes a methodolatry, when God's principle and my method are welded together as one and the same. And I want to say that I believe in expository preaching. And the next session, I'm going to talk to you about how to preach through a book of the Bible and hopefully set you up to preach through the great book of James, perhaps even with me as a guest and a friend. But I just want to acknowledge the Bible doesn't command, it commands us to preach the word, but it doesn't command us to preach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now, what happens is certain people will proof text the scripture and say, well, there it commands it. And they'll quote Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12 in the King James Bible, which says line upon line, precept upon precept. And they'll proof text that and say, see, the Bible commands us to go line upon line. Chapter 28 of Isaiah, just so you know, it's a curse, it's a woe, it's a prophetic judgment against hypocritical religious leaders that God is angry at. So that is no scripture on which to build this mandate. The point is this, I believe in tools, not rules. I believe in the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. I believe in principles and methods. I believe that expository preaching is a great method and I'm trying to encourage you to join me to go through a book of the Bible. It's what I've devoted my entire adult life to. But I can't tell you that the word of God commands it because the spirit of God allows flexibility and freedom. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom methods. So that's expository preaching. The second category is what I'll call expository topical teaching. And what this is, this is teaching verse by verse through a section, but not the whole book. And it's a subsection of a book. I'll give you a uh, some examples. And here are some of the benefits of what I'll call expositional topical teaching. It allows you to help your people focus on a concentrated section of scripture. An example would be, I don't want to preach the whole book of Exodus. I've done it. Some of you ask, Pastor Mark, why is it not online? Because it wasn't very good. Um, I mean, I, I got lost in the woods with Exodus. Not only did the Israelites get lost in the woods, so, so, did, so did I trying to tell their story. Some of you may say, I don't want to preach the whole book of Exodus, but I do want to deal with the Ten Commandments. That would be an expositional topical series. The topical is the law of God, but the exposition is not the whole book. It's a subsection of the book in Exodus chapter 20. Another example of expositional topical teaching would be the fruit of the Spirit. You're saying, I don't want to preach the whole book of Galatians, but I do want to do a series on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, and I'll walk through that verse by verse. This could be going to the Gospel of Matthew and saying, I don't want to preach the whole Gospel of Matthew, but I do want to do a series on the Sermon of the Mount and walk through Jesus' teaching verse by verse. One of my favorites uh, was the seven churches of Revelation. You may say, I don't want to preach the whole book of Revelation, but there are seven churches there. 
And I want to compare and contrast those seven churches and what the Holy Spirit has to say to each of those churches to hear what the Holy Spirit would have to say to our church. It also helps, uh, expositional topical teaching does, it helps the preacher to organize the annual schedule around the holidays. Maybe Christmas is a big deal, Easter's a big deal, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Labor's, Labor Day, Veterans Day, whatever your holidays are, whatever nation you're in. Um, also, there may be capital campaigns, there may be other things that you're trying to do. And let me say this, there are two kinds of leaders, and this is really important when it comes to preaching. There are thought leaders and people leaders. Thought leaders, they will preach through books of the Bible, but not really think about the annual calendar and the leadership cycle of the people. The, the people leaders, they're trying to figure out, well, when do we start this campaign? And when do we do evangelism? And when do we do fundraising? And when do we open the new campus? Or when do we start the new service? Or when do we launch the new ministry? And that you and I are both to be people leaders and thought leaders. And so we are to uh, feed the people, the word of God, and we're to lead the people into the purposes of God. And so ultimately, for those who tend to be more expositional Bible teachers, they're thought leaders, not people leaders. So they're not thinking through the annual calendar, leadership decisions, and some of the practical things of how to gain momentum in ministry through the course of a year. All they're thinking about is just going through a book of the Bible. I'll give you perhaps the most extreme example I can think of that comes to memory. There was a Puritan named William Gurnall, and uh, he's got a big book, you've probably seen it. It's called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's his commentary on just the book of Ephesians. He took, if memory serves me correct, around 30 years just to preach through the book of Ephesians. If you can believe that. Welcome to our 997th sermon on Ephesians. Well, if you're a people leader, you're like, look, I can't spend 30 years drilling down um, at the molecular level of every single Greek word in the book of Ephesians, we also need to lead people, reach people for Christ, raise money, start ministries. We've got things to do. Thought leaders tend to think about feeding people. People leaders tend to think about leading people. And you and I need to be both. And what can help with an expositional topical, it allows you to do feeding. We're gonna go through a section of the Bible and leading it's going to help us build momentum in our ministry according to what we believe our God-given leadership priorities are for the year. Uh, in addition, it allows a shorter series to help refresh the invitation for people. One of the reasons why pastors and preachers, especially people leaders like shorter series, it's new branding and marketing and advertising. It's like you're a bus driver and you pull over and you open the door. Hey, we got a new series on marriage. Hey, all you people that are you know, wanting to learn about this, get on the bus and join us as we head to the kingdom. Hey, your parents, we're doing a little series on parenting, get on the bus. And what it allows you to do is to make multiple stops to invite as many people on as possible and sometimes the expositional topical will allow that. It allows more starting points to invite new people and lost people into the church family to hear the word of God. And then lastly, it allows people to focus on a shorter unit of thought. Um, I've got a buddy of mine uh, some years ago, he pastors a church um, in Vegas, a uh, guy that I know, and most of the people in his church, they're brand new Christians, they park cars, they clean rooms, they wait tables, uh, they've got like an eighth grade reading level, they're brand new to Jesus, they're not formally educated, and if he walked up to them and said, 
you know, hey, let's go through Leviticus. Their minds might explode. And so instead he can pick shorter sections of the Bible just to start to get them started, uh, to begin where they are at. And so sometimes it allows pastors who do know their people very well and love them very much to say, you know, if I'm going to feed you, I need to feed you sort of one bite at a time. Otherwise it's gonna to be too much for you to chew and, and you're, and you're gonna stop, you know, you're gonna stop showing up altogether. And I, I wanna at least get you started rather than overwhelm you. I will say this though, I have found that when you're preaching and teaching the word of God, the Holy Spirit shows up in a supernatural way for Bible teaching in a way that he doesn't for Netflix. Um, most people will say, well, the, the average person's only got a 22 minute attention span. Well, that's true unless the Holy Spirit shows up. And what I believe is that uh, 22 minutes may be the average television show minus the commercials. And so that may be the hardwired condition and predisposition of people's attention span. But once the Holy Spirit shows up to teach them the word of God, I think that people are capable of a lot more than they would be if the Holy Spirit was not involved. The third category, so we've got expository preaching, expository topical, and then topical. And I want you to see this on a continuum. This is biblical theology. Uh, this is systematic theology. And, and this is a continuum. And I want you to see that these are tools, not rules. These are principles, all faithful to the same method of preach the word. Uh, topical preaching is where you read the Bible uh, synchronically. You're, so if you read the Bible diachronically, looking at the storyline, okay, God, creator, creation, fall, flood, Moses, Israel, prophets, promises, uh, preparation, incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, outpouring of the spirit, second coming of Jesus, kingdom of God, just off the top of my head, that's my riff on the storyline of the Bible. And that would be diachronic reading along the storyline. Synchronic reading, systematic theology is going across and saying, okay, here's all the things it says about the Holy Spirit and putting those in a bucket. Here's all the things it says about marriage, put those in a bucket. Here's everything it says about parenting, put that in a bucket. And you're collecting according to unit of thought or category. That being said, there are some benefits to this. It, it helps people um, see the unity of the Bible. Because what they're seeing is, oh, God says the same thing from beginning to end. He doesn't change his mind or contradict himself. And some people think, well, I don't need the Old Testament. It's old. Actually, the storyline of the Bible is it's promise fulfillment. And so they're absolutely interconnected. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So the, the storyline of the Bible is Old Testament is promise. New Testament is fulfillment. And it helps people see, oh, that's how the Bible goes together. Um, Pastor Robert will do this a lot when he will say, put your finger here in the Old Testament, put your finger here in the New Testament. And what he's saying is, you see, these connect. Promise, fulfillment. There is a biblical theologian named Gerhardus Voss. He's a bit of an obscure theologian, but he uses this analogy of bud and flower. And he says in the Old Testament, the doctrines are like a bud. And then in the New Testament, they blossom like a flower meaning they are the same, but here they are fully revealed and unveiled in their fullness of glory and beauty. And sometimes a topical series can show that. So it says here in Isaiah, the virgin will be with child. And now we get to meet Mary and Joseph and look at the incarnation and, and the birth of Jesus and how it all came to pass in the perfect fullness of time. But flower in fullness. And it can really help people understand the whole Bible and appreciate those connections. In addition, topical preaching um, helps people 
um, understand progressive revelation. That it says, for example, in Genesis 3, that Jesus would come. That's the beginning of the promise. But then all of those prophetic promises throughout the Old Testament, that's progressive revelation. And then Jesus comes as God, Savior, Lord, King, and Christ in fulfillment. And it helps people see progressive revelation, which is that we see in part and we know in part. Because even right now, we only have partial and progressive revelation. There are things that God has said that are being fulfilled and there are other things that we're waiting for Jesus to come back and fulfill. And so it helps people have patience and live by faith, not by sight, knowing that God makes promises, but sometimes we need to be patient in their fulfillment. That was true before the first coming of Jesus. That's true before the second coming of Jesus. We're all waiting the promises to be fulfilled. And that's progressive revelation. A couple other things that help with topical preaching as well. As things arise in the church or the culture, um, it allows the pastor to address them. And sometimes you have to. For example, some years ago, when I was uh, just getting ready to plant my first church, uh, I was in my mid-20s, a buddy of mine was planting a church, and a couple showed up, and she was evangelical, Trinitarian, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled gal. Her husband was a Jehovah's Witness. He was in a cult. He thought that Jesus was the archangel Michael and a created being. He didn't believe that Jesus was fully God and he didn't believe in the Trinity. Now, she was more the extrovert, overt, highly relational networking kind of person. He was a little behind the scenes. So everybody got to know her and love her. So she's on the worship team and leading the women's table and doing great. Her husband owns a business. Next thing you know, he's singing with her on stage and uh, you know, he's helping lead a Bible study that kind of goes from a women's study maybe into a couple's study. And everybody assumed, well, he believes what she believes. Well, then come to find, no, he's ardently, vehemently anti-Trinitarian. And he does not believe that Jesus is creator God. He believes that Jesus is a created being. And, and he's very militant in his beliefs. He's not a lost person seeking to get his questions answered. He's a false teacher. He's a wolf in the sheep pen. Well, what's the pastor got to do as the shepherd? He's like, I, I need to correct this because next thing you know, the, he's got people working for him. They're denying the Trinity and Jesus is creator. And it starts to be a real divisive problem within his church. So he has to stop and do a sermon series on the Trinity, which absolutely is necessary to safeguard because there are closed-handed issues and open-handed issues. These are issues we can debate, dialogue, and disagree over. These are issues we have to divide over. These are like state borders that distinguish various kinds of Christians. These are like national borders that divide Christians and non-Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a cult. Christianity, various teams, tribes, and traditions, we're all in the same family. These may be things that uniquely identify us, but they don't divide us but this is a national boundary, closed-handed issue. So the pastor had to do a whole sermon series on the Trinity. I would say, praise be to God. That's what you gotta do as a good shepherd. Also, what I like about topical preaching and teaching is it allows you to hit an issue from multiple perspectives so you're not guilty of reductionism. As a Bible teacher, one of the greatest errors is you're not saying something that the Bible doesn't say, but you're not saying all that the Bible does say. So there are two ways to err, saying something that the Bible doesn't say or not saying all that the Bible does have to say. And that is more common. Most pastors I know, they're good hearted. They do love the Lord. They're trying their best. Um, and we're trying to preach and teach. 
and we teach what the Bible says, but we miss some things. And as a result, we don't say everything that the Bible says. And topical preaching and teaching can help correct that. I'll give you an example. Um, Paul says in Corinthians, uh, don't sue each other. Well, okay. Some Christians will say, well, that's all the Bible says. So if you get a lawyer, you're in sin. First Corinthians was a series of questions, biblical theology, that Paul sent, excuse me, that the Corinthians sent to Paul. Here's our questions. And then he writes the answers. Well, part of the problem with teaching first Corinthians is what was the questions? Like if you're watching an episode of Jeopardy and you watch all the answers, but you didn't get to hear the questions, it's gonna be a little hard to figure out what the episode of Jeopardy was all about. That's kind of how it is reading first Corinthians. We have the answers, but not the questions. And what Paul is talking about there, he uses the language of trivial matters, meaning minor things that should be able to be sorted out without getting the cops and the lawyers involved. It should be fairly simple. What he's talking there is not about civil cases or murder or you know, um, some sort of treason or massive legal liability and complexity. But if you're going through Corinthians and all you, all you just teach is that one line and you don't hit the rest of what Paul has to say, you could be guilty of reductionism. All the attorneys in your church are just like, I guess we're in sin now. I guess being a lawyer is a sin. It's not. So in addition to what he says in Corinthians, for example, Paul says over in Romans 13 that God works through government, authority, judicial process, and law. Therefore, work through legal processes and God-given authority. So if you're only preaching through Corinthians and you don't bring in what Paul says in Romans 13, you could be guilty of reductionism. And so what I like about topical preaching and teaching, it doesn't just say what the Bible says, it allows us to say all of what the Bible says on a particular subject for more thoroughness. Now, that being said, those are the three primary ways to preach the word. Expositional, expositional topical, and topical. Now, when it comes to expositional preaching, which is what I am all about, and here's what I will say, I do all three. Uh, right now, I'm doing a uh, small series on spiritual gifts. It's topical. Uh, I have done uh, expositional topical series like the Ten Commandments, and I've preached through whole books of the Bible. So I do all three. Most of my preaching would be expositional, and then some of it would be expositional topical and some of it topical. But sometimes people will bristle or push against expository preaching and teaching, going through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and they have some reasons. So let me answer those objections, provide answers to those questions. The first is some people will say, well, if we only go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, that could cause our people to become legalistic. And the truth is it can. That if you don't have multiple methods, you could end up with legalism. And sometimes you don't know that your people are legalists until you change something and then they freak out. And you're like, why are you freaking out? So what I would say is it's good to use all three methods. And sometimes it's even good to quote other Bible translations because not only will people get legalistic about the mode of Bible teaching, they'll also get legalistic about the Bible translation. There is word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrase. I like to use a word for word like the English Standard Version to preach in. In my devotional life, I like a thought for thought, more like a New International Version or a New Living Translation. And sometimes for fun, almost like a commentary, I'll check a paraphrase. But if I only and always preach using one translation of the Bible, 
people can get legalistic. So I like to quote and bring in other Bible translations just to keep them from Bible legalism. And I have seen people be very legalistic on chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Unless every single weekend, all we do is expositional, then we're not truly being biblical. And, and that's just pride. And knowledge puffs up. And we gotta be careful that we have love so that we build up. Probably the worst example that I've seen of this, and it's somebody that I know and love, and I won't name them and you don't know them, but as a new Christian, I went to a church on Easter. It wasn't my first church and, and my original pastor was a good man. They were going through Genesis and the pastor was so legalistic about expository preaching that he wouldn't even pivot for Easter. So I kid you not, this actually happened. I was actually sitting behind a grandma with a big Easter bonnet on and he gets up and he's like, open your Bibles to Genesis. So I was like, hmm, interesting place to start for Easter. The text he was on was on the sin of onanism. And if you know anything about the sin of onanism, it's a really weird debate for Easter. And if you don't know what it means, don't Google it, but just trust me, it was the weirdest Easter sermon in the history of the world. I kept waiting for him to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and we never got there. What he said was, we go through books of the Bible and we don't, we don't deviate. I was like, you forgot to tell him that Jesus is alive on Easter. So now you're a legalist. Your methodology has become a met methodolatry. Your principle now only has one method. And, and I'm saying that it can be legalistic, but it shouldn't be legalistic. Another argument against expository preaching is it's not evangelistic. If you go deep, you can't go wide. If you're gonna teach, you can't reach. And I would say that's not necessarily true. That um, I have preached through books of the Bible with long sermons. Uh, I think in Romans, my longest sermon was an hour and 17 minutes. I'm not recommending that, but if you can get away with it and your parking team will let you, congratulations. Um, but I've seen 10,000 people baptized under my preaching in the local church in my lifetime. And so I believe there is a way to preach and teach and to reach. I believe you can go deep and you can go wide. I, I, I believe that there is a way to do that. But I would say that oftentimes the churches that say that we're Bible teaching, they're not lost reaching. And I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think in the spirit of God and the grace of God, it can be a both and. You just need to find the way to do what Paul says, and that's do the work of an evangelist. And so doing the work of an evangelist is finding a way to preach and teach and reach. And a couple of thoughts on that is number one, it is taking time in the sermon to answer the objections of the hearers. Paul says in Romans one that we suppress the truth, meaning when people hear the truth, our primary resistance to it is not mental, but it's moral. Meaning we don't understand what the Bible says, we don't like it because it becomes an issue of lordship. I'll give you an example in Romans one. He says, people, people like to change their gender, sex, and sexuality. And God shows up and says no, and people are like, don't tell me what to do. Um, most problems are not Bible related, they're belt related. Um, most problems people have are not with the prophets, it's with their pants. And so what Paul is saying in Romans one, they hear something and God is saying, no, that's a sin you need to repent. And they're saying, no, we wanna keep doing it. Feels good, we like it, we enjoy it. This is our tolerant, diverse lifestyle. And so what that means is people suppress the truth. Meaning just like they tried to uh, kill and bury Jesus, they try and kill and bury the truth about Jesus. Today on social media, we'd call this throttling or negative narrative or fake news. It's suppressing of things that are true. 
So for you and I, we can't just tell the truth. We need to assume that the person's first response who is unrepentant is to express the truth. Then we need to answer their objections to bring that truth back to bear and to remove that defeater belief that they are using to negate the truth. And so this is something that the Puritans did. So in the history of America, uh, sometimes the Puritans get a bad rap um, their sermons were long, not because they were long-winded, but because they would take time in the sermons to answer the objections of the hearers. So you may be speaking to a number of single people and say, okay, the Bible says that fornication is a sin, which is living and sleeping together before marriage. And all the single people are like, oh, that's crazy. That's, you know, that's old. That's outdated. That's antiquated. So then you answer the objections of the hearers. So l- let me tell you this. Uh, statistically, sociologically, from the non-Christians' research, couples that... Uh, live together before marriage have higher rates of divorce. They have higher rates of adultery. They have higher rates of abuse. They have higher rates of dissatisfaction. Uh, The couples that are pure until marriage and don't live together until they're in covenant, they have the highest satisfaction rates. They have the greatest sexual intimacy reports. They have the lowest likelihood of domestic violence or divorce or abuse, and it's the best environment for a child. What you're doing now is you're answering the objections with the data because God's way is the best way and let God be true and every man a liar. And we all reap what we sow. And if we sow that which is against the word of God, then we're going to reap a life that is not under the blessing of God. So answering the objections of the hearers is one way to make your sermon evangelistic. In addition, I would say there's a difference between being seeker sensitive and seeker sensible. Seeker sensitive is how do we build the whole service for the non-Christian? Seeker sensitive is how do we worship God and pray and have a fully spirit-filled experience like 1 Corinthians 14 says, so that they sense the presence of God and they hear the word of God and they come to encounter the living God. Because some people are saved through persuasion and others through power, some through incredible arguments and through others through incredible, powerful, supernatural, divine breakthrough experiences. How do we just welcome the spirit of God to minister to people in profound ways? Uh, But as he does, it's being seeker sensible, meaning it's explaining to the non-Christians what we mean. The Bible is like going into a foreign country. There's words and languages and categories that are new. So we need a translator. And you as the Bible teacher, you could say, okay, it says here fellowship. Let me explain to you what that means. It says here holiness. Let me explain what that means. It says here glory. Let me explain what that means. It says here God. Let me explain who he is. So seeker sensible is not building a whole church for the non-Christian, but it's being the church as Christians and then making note to invite non-Christians to make sense of this new language and these new experiences that they are encountering. And ultimately, all scripture is about Jesus. So at some point, the sermon has to get to Jesus. It's not truly a Christian sermon unless it gets to Jesus Christ. In John 5, Jesus is arguing with religious people. And uh, he says, you diligently study the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find eternal life. You fail to recognize these are the scriptures that testify about me. He's like, the Bible's about me. Uh, At the end of Luke on all of the resurrection encounters where Jesus is teaching the Bible, it says he went to the law and the prophets. um, And it says that he opened their understanding to see that the whole Bible was about him. So in every sermon, so that you're not just teaching the word, but you're reaching the lost through the teaching of the word. It's asking, how do we get to Jesus? You see a prophet, priest, or king? 
Okay, those point to Jesus' three offices of prophets, priests, and kings. Cain kills Abel. Okay, we're Cain. Jesus is the better Abel. Uh, Job is suffering and his buddies deny and abandon him. Well, that reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm just kind of verbal processing for you. But, you know, uh, Abraham leaves his father and homeland. Jesus kind of did that when he came from heaven to earth. Um, let's say Boaz goes and he loves and redeems Ruth. Well, Jesus is the greater Boaz and, and we are the outcast, marginalized Moabite Ruth. Uh, the Bible is filled with these themes and threads and storylines and like service. And um, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so Jesus was in the earth three days and three nights and Jesus is the greater Jonah. And he comes forth to reach a multitude greater than Nineveh. It's just constantly going back to your biblical theological categories and asking, how does this get to Jesus? How do I make Jesus the hero? How do I make Jesus the center? How do I make Jesus the savior? How do I reveal Jesus as the Lord? And then making a heartfelt, passionate invitation in every sermon for people to turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And sometimes people will say, well, you don't wanna do expository preaching because you wanna be relevant and timely. And what I would say is this, uh, we don't make the Bible relevant, we show the relevance of the Bible. We assume that God, is timeless and God's word is therefore always timely because God's word is not old, it's eternal. Because it's eternal, it's always timely. And, and so when you assume that the Bible is timely and you assume that the Bible is relevant, now you're showing the relevance and timeliness of the word of God to speak into specific circumstances. And having done this for 25 years, I'm constantly shocked every week I get up and lo and behold, something in the church or in the culture or in politics blows up that week. And it just so happens that it's like a sniper shot from heaven, bullseye right to the target. That section of God's word that was laid out 12 months in advance absolutely fits. And I've been doing this 25 years. And I, every week I just kind of chuckle because every time that's my experience. Couple of things in closing. And I would just say this, fulfill your ministry. I'll see you in the next session. We'll talk about preaching through uh, books of the Bible in general, but the book of James in particular. Paul tells a young pastor in the New Testament, fulfill your ministry. I'm not supposed to fulfill your ministry. You're not supposed to fulfill my ministry. I'm supposed to fulfill my ministry. You're supposed to fulfill your ministry. The Bible says don't covet. We shouldn't covet anyone else's ministry. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. I don't know what God is leading you to do. I'm just inviting you to consider going through a book of the Bible with me. That's all, because I love you and it's my favorite thing. And if you want to do it together, I'd love to help. But just a few thoughts if you're considering going through a book of the Bible with me. As you're organizing um, your outline of how to preach a book of the Bible, and I'm going to invite you to go through James with me in the next session, just remember that the 1,189 chapters were added around the 1200s and that the 31,173 verses were added around the 1500s. So times when we read the Bible, the chapters and verses, they teach our brain to see these as divided units of thought, but they weren't in the original. It wasn't until the printing press by Johann Gutenberg, the believer, and the promulgation of Bible reading into the native language of the hearers that it became very popular to put chapters and verses in the Bible. And I think it's great, and I'm not against it. Sometimes it's good to read the Bible without chapters or verses, just so you can get the narrative arc and flow. But nonetheless, 
Um, it's like a street and an address so people can find your house and you can find their house. It's super helpful, but it wasn't in the original. And so you don't necessarily have to be bound by the chapter and verse thought unit divisions. For example, I think in Romans, excuse me, in Ephesians 1, if memory serves me correct, 3 through 14, in the original Greek text, it's one sentence. Paul says, I've been thinking about some stuff and I just want to praise God. And he just does. The Holy Spirit shows up. He doesn't even have time for punctuation. He's just rolling downhill with glory to God. In addition, I like, this is my ministry. So this is how I fulfill my ministry. These are tools, not rules, you know, methods, not principles. I like to lay out my preaching 12 months in advance so that my team can get ready, that we can get uh, study guides, daily devotions, branding, all of that ready. And then I can be studying upwards of 12 months in advance so that I'm taking things that I'm seeing and hearing and reading and learning and I can dump those into the various series and subsections. So when the week of preaching comes, I only spend a few hours a week. I only spend a few hours a week preparing the sermon because I've been working on it for upwards of 12 months. And I just like having that pressure off of me. Uh, my notes are a compass, not a map. They give me a direction, but not every single step of the way. Um, a, a large portion of my sermons um, are extemporaneous, the jokes, the uh, cross-references, the illustrations. They are oftentimes made up in the moment. And a sermon can vary from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. or whatever the case may be. And for me, I want to be, uh, you know, truth and spirit, uh, word and spirit. And so I want to be just steeped in the word of God and the truth of God, but I want to be emotionally present in the moment that the Holy Spirit can navigate my words and my emphases and my focus for the people that are in the room. And so there is something about, and, 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 and I come from more of the Bible, a little more fundamental reform background, which is all about study, study, study. And then my charismatic and Pentecostal friends um, are about, you know, be present, be in the spirit, be in the flow. And when Jesus says, uh, you know, worship in spirit and in truth, I feel like, yeah, both are right. Like the, the study is like the rudder and then the spirit is like the sail. I want to have the full power of God, but I want to know where he wants me to go so I can direct all of that power and authority. And so I see study as the rudder and I see being filled with the Holy Spirit and able to pivot in the process and the presence as uh, the sail being set. And, and I think you need both. And so for me, the more I study and prepare both the messenger and the message, the more free I feel in the moment to flow in the spirit and to have freedom and flexibility. In addition, when you're preaching, look for images in the text. Those are particularly memorable. So Jesus is lion and lamb. Uh, he's tough and tender. He fights for his people, but he doesn't fight with his people. Um, when the Bible uses the language of throne, that image shows the divine counsel in the unseen realm that Michael Heiser talks about. And, and it shows the glorious rule and reign of God over all from the unseen realm to the seen realm. And, and when the throne appears, I think in like 17 of the 22 chapters of Revelation and like 45 of 60 some appearances of the throne in the New Testament, according to memory, when they explode, I mean, you can kind of see it in the book of Revelation. Uh, God sits on a throne and all glory goes to the throne and all authority comes from the throne and all people are judged by the one seated on the throne and, and all the nations are surrounded by the one on the throne. And there's certain images like this in the Bible that just explode and they summarize so much deep, significant 
biblical doctrine and instruction that you can really awaken life in your hearers by focusing on not only the concepts, but the images. You think in our day of like logos and brands and theming, that's what some of the imaging does in the Bible. Uh, Spurgeon says as well that illustrations are like windows that let light into a home. Spurgeon's one of my favorite Bible teachers. Sometimes a sermon can feel a little dark and a few illustrations, they just let light in and it just sort of lets everybody see what the word of God is saying. A couple of things as well. Uh, Bestcommentaries.com uh, is where I would send you. It's um, it's kind of like Yelp reviews for Bible commentaries. So if you're going through a book of the Bible or a subject, it'll say, is it liberal or conservative or Pentecostal or charismatic or reformed or cessationist? What is the theological team, tribe and tradition? They'll rank it on scholarly ability. Because if you go to teach uh, either expositional or expositional topical and you buy commentaries, you're like, that one's no good. I wasted time on that. Wasted 50 bucks on that. It's frustrating. Go to bestcommentaries.com. It's nerd paradise. It's where all the guys with more degrees than Fahrenheit uh, got together and shared all of their knowledge. And what I would always encourage is um, Logos Bible Software. Uh, Faith Life uh, created and developed Logos Bible Software. I've used it since the beginning and uh, it's incredible. And uh, it's an incredible resource and it's custom built for expository Bible teaching. And I'll just close with this. Um, they have something called the Lexham Bible Commentary, L-E-X-H-A-M. What they will do, their scholars will go through the top commentaries on a book of the Bible. They will summarize and synthesize the big ideas for each section, say Romans chapter one or whatever the case may be. They will pull out the major quotes from the primary commentators in the various theological teams, tribes, and traditions. They'll summarize it all together. So you can either read these 20 commentaries or you can read this one Lexham Bible commentary that summarizes all the 20 for you. It's incredible. The day we live in has more tools available to help us do a better job with Bible teaching than at any time in the history of the world. So thank you for letting me kind of verbal process with you. I'll see you in the next session. We're gonna talk about expository preaching in particular, and I'm gonna invite you to join me to go through the great book of James written by Jesus' brother, and I've got a whole bunch of free resources I'm really excited to share with you. We hope today's message impacted you and they will continue to bless your life and legacy for generations to come. For more Real Leaders content, visit realfaith.com slash realleaders. And to sign up to get Real Leaders content straight to your inbox, visit realfaith.com slash sign up.